Living in retrospect is a bad idea, and sometimes we let our same old stories hold us back from the new adventure God has for us. But here's the truth. God wants to restory us, transforming our tales of tragedy into epics to anticipate. In this podcast, Mary DeMuth interviews people who have lived through God's powerful restory process, where they've discovered healing, joy, and a brand new perspective. So let's shed that old, painful story and find the freedom we've been longing for. The Restory Podcast starts now. The Restory Show, Season 2, Episode 6. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook and a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com forward slash restory. They have a whole bunch of titles to choose from for any device that you have, and they're great to take with you on a long vacation. Today, I am welcoming Fran Geiger-Joslin to the Restory Show, and she and I have known each other a couple years. We actually met in my hairdresser's place, and uh, we started a friendship there. She she and her husband, Howard, have started a publishing company called Authenticity Bookhouse, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But prior to that, she suffered some pretty major things in her life, um, particularly her the loss of her husband and what it was like to be a young widow with a lot of kids. And so anyway, it's an amazing story. And I'm sure that uh, you will be greatly encouraged by her faith and the things that she and her new husband, Howard, are stepping out into. One of the things I wanted to share was that this ministry that they have, Authenticity Bookhouse, they Uh, One of the things they do is they publish authors' works, which is great, and they allow you to keep the copyright, which is awesome, and they give you a great royalty structure. But the other thing that they do that is really cool is they translate theological resources into other languages, and they use pastors from overseas to do the translating. So it benefits the pastors because they make money on the translation, but then they send these theological resources into under-resourced places around the world. All that to say that they have translated, not marked, my book about sexual abuse and healing from sexual abuse into Swahili. And this last summer, it was taken to Tanzania and given to sexual abuse victims there. And so this, what they do is really, really cool. And I'm very excited to bring Fran on to the Restory Show today. So here we go. Here is Fran. Hey everyone, this is Mary with the Restory Show, and today I have my guest, Fran Geiger Joslin. And, um, she is a friend of mine, and you know, you don't meet a lot of friends necessarily at, at, um, your hairdressers, but that is where we met each other. So, you know, we both have really awesome hair and a really great hairdresser, <laughs> and that's how we met. But Fran, welcome, and thanks for coming on the Restory Show today. Thank you, Mary. We're going to start with just a little bit of your story, since this is the Restory show, and you have kind of an unusual upbringing, so why don't you bring the listeners up to speed on uh, how you were raised and, and kind of bring us to when you first, when you met your husband. Um, yeah, I was born in Indonesia. Um, See, that's actually, different. Like, not a lot of people yeah. can say that. <laughs> I don't look Indonesian. No. Um, but my parents went as pioneer missionaries in the 50s, and so I was born in Indonesia. I was born in a blue room where boys were, or girls were never born, and I was the third child, uh, the first two girls, and so I was supposed to be a boy, and there was no girl name even picked out for me, but surprise, here I am. So anyway, we were basically born into the Stone Age, um, truly, <laughs> 
Um, I mean, the people would kill and eat each other, uh, different oh villages. Um, yeah, I'm glad you're still the... here, Fran. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm glad you weren't some sort of weird sacrifice. Yeah, well, and there are stories of missionaries from that area that that happened to. So that's oh. the era in which I grew up. Part of that included, um, you know, back in that day, there was no such thing as homeschooling. And so we went to what was called Missionary Kid Boarding School, um, run by a particular mission organization. So at age six, we all hopped the Cessna 180, which is a small airplane. And um, we were carried to boarding school with one little tiny suitcase for a whole semester. And um, that school basically went up to eighth grade. We came home from the mission field when I was going into sixth grade, however, because we had experienced some difficulties and one of my sisters had some, some real struggles from that. And so my parents didn't want to send us to another country to go to high school, which is what would have had to happen. So that was my elementary years. I came home. Wait, before you keep going, tell me a little bit about what it's like to be in a boarding school away from your parents when you're like five or six years old. How was that? Very painful. I, you know, for me, I was the third child to go away. So I was a little more prepared than my sisters were. And I did have sisters there. So if I got homesick, I could kind of go visit my sisters. There's a lot of, a lot of pain and, and 40, 50 years later now, you know, people are talking about it. And, you know, what I hear regularly is I cried myself to sleep every night, but nobody knew everybody else was crying themselves to sleep at night. And so there was just a lot of, yeah, a lot of pain, a lot of, um, but again, that's all we knew. We didn't know people who went to regular school. So it was also, you know, just part of the deal kind of, you know. But yeah, we kind of lived, ate, slept, and went to school and breathed with, you know, our whole group of kids that we went to school with. How many kids were there? Um, We actually had a reunion this weekend, and we counted about 18 that kind of came and went. So we weren't all there at one time. Maybe it was 12 or 13 at a time. Um, Different families would go home on what we called furlough, you know, for a year or so at a time. And so that was actually a pretty big class, I think, 12 or 13. And when you were in the summers, I'm assuming you were home with your parents when it wasn't the school year, or were you? Was yes. it year around? Okay, and we had so then, five five weeks at Christmas and three months in the summer. So then, what was it like? Did you ever have any fears about living in the jungle, or were there any like things that were scary during that time, or did you were just a kid and you didn't know? Were like snakes and scary monkeys, or I don't know. <laughs> to this day, I'm scared to death of snakes. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, we our first through third grade dorm was up on top of a hill. And interestingly, the bathrooms were built across the side of the a big ravine. They did not put walls that went from ceiling to ground. They were just metal, you know. So being the third child to go away, I had I heard many, many stories about, about the back bathroom that lined right up against that ravine. And um, I was told, don't ever go in those bathrooms or showers because the snakes come in and shed their skins in there. <laughs> so to this day, I'm still very scared of snakes. <laughs> I never actually had to deal with one. <laughs> um, but yeah, we had boa constrictors. We had, you, you name it, it was, it was a scary deal. And the boys you know, often ran into snakes and, um, we often saw the dead ones after the boys had encountered them, you know? So yeah, very scary for me. I think that that scared me much more than the natives with their bows and arrows. (laughs) (laughs) 
And so did you have relationships with any of the natives? Did you speak their language or did you just always know your own language? We did as children, you know, uh, until we went to boarding school, we became part of the culture. So we played with the kids. We did learn the language. We spoke it fluently. But then when we went to school, we spoke English exclusively. So over time, we kind of forgot the language of the tribe. Not everybody, but I, I, I certainly did. Um, some of my classmates that stayed there longer, they remembered the language as they went back and forth. I can, I can remember phrases, but... I can't speak fluently anymore. Have you been back? I have not. I was recently in Bangkok, and had my husband been along, I might have gone back. Um, I didn't want to take any more time away, um, and I didn't want to go alone. So, um, yeah, I would love to go back someday. Okay, so you were like this missionary kid who went to a missionary school in Indonesia, and you got back to the United States of America. Did you feel awkward at all? because <laughs> I think I would have felt awkward. That would be called an understatement. Because <laughs> um, you're I a third culture kid, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're, you've got a third And a third going into kid. the sixth grade, you know, is the height of puberty. Yeah. So I got to join the U.S. culture at the height of puberty. Um, lots of changes took place in my body that year, as well as my brain and my emotions, probably. Um I mean, it was so bad that, you know, the, quote, natives that we worked with, you know, they were brown-skinned, and most of the missionaries were white-skinned. And so I went to school the first year back in South Carolina. There were a lot of African-Americans in my school, and I could not conceive of the fact that they were Americans. Hmm. Hmm. To me, they were natives. And so that was, I mean, that's just a tiny piece of the cultural shock that we went through, you know. Yes, life in the U.S. is much, much different. And so you, how did you manage to make it through junior high and high school? Did you have gaps in your education, or were you okay? Did you learn how to fit in, and how did that work? I think it took time to learn how to fit in. I'm not sure I still fit in. Um, <laughs> I know this about I you. I to embrace that fact. <laughs> yeah, it was fair. I think what I did, we spent a year in South Carolina while my dad got his master's degree in missiology, and then we moved to Pennsylvania. Um, I think that first year was kind of a blur. In fact, I remember my mom the night before the first day of school took one of her outfits and resized it to fit me hmm. so that I had something to wear to school the next day. Whoa. Um, I'm not sure when we were able to afford clothing, but I believe I washed that outfit numerous times and wore it to school, you know, and I'm sure the kids were like, does she have nothing else to wear? And no, I didn't. Mm. Um, so that, yeah, but that first year was pretty much a blur. And then we moved to Pennsylvania. And at that point, I think, you know, seventh grade now, I was um, realizing that my language didn't quite fit the American culture. You know, they would use terms that, or I would use terms that they would laugh at, you know, you know, like the word gay mm -hmm. used to mean something else than it means now. And so it was that sort of thing. I would use a word that was outdated and people would kind of giggle and laugh. And so what I ended up doing was um, just kind of going into a shell. I stayed very quiet and shy during in, in school, because we went to public school. At church, I kind of found my way um, among believers, I think. I sort of thrived in that environment. Um, but at school, I, for many, many years, I went into a kind of a shell. Hmm. And so then did you go to college? 
Went to college. I was, as I said, the third child, and my dad was very well known as this big missionary, you know, and um, so I needed to find my own identity. So (laughs) I left home and went to Birmingham, Alabama, my first couple of years of school, and then I had health issues and ended up having to come home. So graduated from Philadelphia College of Bible. Cool. And what year was that? 1985. Okay, so graduated then. And so um, eventually you got married. So how did that happen? Where did you meet your husband? (laughs) I met my husband in Texas. um, And that's a little bit of a long story how I got to Texas. One year, it might have been my final year in um, Indonesia, this boy came back from furlough. They they had spent a year in Dallas. um, And this boy had the greatest accent I had ever heard. And I thought, oh, my goodness, I'm going to Texas someday because I want to sound like that. (laughs) That makes total sense. um, Interesting, we had a reunion this past weekend, and he, after seeing, you know, greeting everybody, he says, do you remember me? And I just had to laugh because he is the whole reason I'm in Texas. I, after graduating college, my goal was to be a missionary. Um, my dad was ready for me to kind of move on, but I had sort of grown up in a Christian bubble, and I felt like I needed to sort of spread my wings a little bit. My sister and her husband were in Texas at seminary, and so I thought, well, this is my chance. So I decided to go to Dallas for a year, um, applied to mission agencies. I met Brian, my first husband, during that time, um, and we were just friends because I was going to the mission field and he wasn't. I continued that process, but right about the time I left for missionary orientation school, we realized our hearts were a little more entwined than we had anticipated or planned. (laughs) And so that sort of brought on the, okay, now what are we going to do? And um, he, he said to me, Fran, I want God's will for your life, whether or not that includes me. Hmm. And I said to myself, wow, I don't want to lose this guy (laughs) (laughs) if he's willing to let me go Mm -hmm. for God's purposes. And so that started the whole process of months of trying to figure out, was it acceptable to date? Was he willing to consider missions? Was I really called to missions? All Mm. of those questions Wow, were huge. And (sighs) uh, we... Um, sought a lot of advice. Finally, somebody said to me, um, and I I started doubting and questioning, you know, what does God really want from me? And and Brian started looking into missions and, you know, he wanted to be open to it. But someone finally said, you know, I think you owe it to the relationship to see it through. And um, maybe if God wants you in missions, it's not right now. So we kind of went with that. Six months later, we were married. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and he started seminary, but then long, another long story, I had some health issues, one of which um, was endometriosis. Oh, right. Which can affect your fertility and right. all that. Yeah. So basically our doctor said it's now or never, it may be never anyway. So uh, then we sort of decided to go ahead and have kids. Our first child was born with a heart condition. Our second mm. child was born with a severe asthma. Wow. In the end, all three of our kids had asthma. We finally just decided God was closing the door to missions. And so um, I said to Brian, I think if we could go into business, maybe I would be okay with at least supporting missions, you know. So that was the plan. Um, Our plan didn't work out so well, but we tried. (laughs) (laughs) 
And the Lord had a long journey for us, and I assume you're going to ask questions from yes. here. <laughs> yeah, so um, into your marriage, and you've got your kids, he received a very devastating diagnosis, and tell us a little bit about learning about that. Brian started maybe nine years into our marriage. He started having what we called episodes. We didn't know what they were. Went to the doctor. The doctor told him they were panic attacks. Um, so for at least six months, we went under the assumption that he was having panic attacks. And they would come on while he was driving the family to church or wherever, you know, and I could see it happening. And he would just tell himself, okay, calm down, calm down, you know, just... Um, Finally, one day he uh, flew to Midland, Texas. He left about five in the morning. His plan was to rent a car when he arrived and he was going to visit clients all day long. And I just remember very clearly taking hold of his hand that morning. I don't remember that this was a habit of mine when he traveled, but I, I just remembered that morning I took hold of his hand and I said, be careful. I took my son to the doctor that day. This was before cell phones or at least before I had a cell phone. And I remember my mother-in-law had my daughter, and at the last minute she said, oh, you know, I need the doctor's phone number just in case anything happens. So I was at the doctor with my son when I got this call um, saying that Brian had had a seizure. He was okay, but he'd had a seizure in the plane, and they had him in the ER in Midland, Texas. On my way home from the doctor's office, I remember literally shaking, and I said to myself, no matter what, I'm going to survive this. And just to backtrack a little bit, I didn't tell this part of the story, but at one point in my life, and it was actually on our way home from the mission field, I read a book called Not My Will. It kind of set me on the right track spiritually, really was the impetus toward moving me in the right direction spiritually. Uh, I kind of over the years forgot what the story was about, but I remembered that the book had changed my life. Um, And it was soon after I read that book that I had this sense somewhere deep inside that I might lose my husband young. Hmm. I never told anybody because it seemed absurd. I felt like that's just dumb. Why would you have something like that? You know? So I tried to just put it out of my mind, but over the years it just kept coming back. In fact, I remember probably a month or two before Brian was diagnosed, I had that thought again. And I just told myself, you've got to get over this, you know? Um, But I really believe at this point that that was something God put within me to prepare me. So anyway, um, the diagnosis that day uh, in the ER in Midland was uh, that Brian had a brain tumor. So I heard the news over the phone. Um, Brian was not one to cry. Uh, I only remember probably less than five times in our marriage that he cried. But when I spoke to him that morning, he was in tears. Hmm. And I said, what's wrong? And he said, are you sitting down? (laughs) And um, that's when he told me and he said his tears were his concern for me and the kids. He said, I'm going to be fine no matter what happens. If I die, I go to heaven, but it's you who has to pick up the pieces and go on. He was a very tenderhearted man who cared about us, you know, and his tears were not for himself. They were for us. For the listeners of ReStory, Audible is offering a free download with a 30-day free trial to check out their service. And today I'm going to suggest that you try Not Marked, Finding Hope and Healing After Sexual Abuse, which is translated now into Swahili. But the one that I read is not in Swahili. This is available at audibletrial.com forward slash ReStory. And if you've ever thought about doing um, Audible, this would be a great time. It helps support the work that we're doing here at the ReStory Show. 
Wow. And so then how long before he was able to fly back or come back? Um, the hospital, we, of course, were in shock. We weren't thinking clearly. The hospital, strangely, and this was before 9-11, they gave him lots of shots. One was steroid. One was anti-seizure medications. They put him in a taxi cab, hmm. sent him back to the airport. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> and he returned home all by himself on that airplane. And, you know, we later were like, what on <laughs> earth were we thinking? <laughs> you know? Wow. But yeah, had I do it, could I have done it again? We would have said, let us, somebody come get him. But thankfully the, the taxi driver was a sweetheart, had enough compassion to get him into the airport in a wheelchair, get somebody to take care of him. I think he may have taken him to the gate. That wow. was, you know, back in the day. Because you, you could, could do, do that. that, right? Yeah. And then I, you know, I had to tell Brian, make sure that stewardesses or the flight attendants know what you've been through today in case it happens again. And then my father-in-law went and I went to the airport to pick him up. And I just, I will never, ever forget the experience at the airport. You know, this was Love Field in Dallas, Um I don't even remember what day it was, but I, my life had come to a screeching halt. And I was standing there in bewilderment, watching people just come and go, flying by me, you know, on their phones, carrying briefcases, all this stuff, you know. And I just was so blown away by life going on around me as my life came to a crazy place, you know. Um, I, I, this is another piece of that story. As we stood there waiting for Brian to be wheeled out from the airplane, we weren't quite sure where to go because he wasn't coming out from the same place everybody else was coming. And I, I noticed this man standing kind of in the corner by the door. He just had a very calming effect on me. He never really spoke until I asked, where do we need to go to wait for Brian? And he's, he was the one who drew, kind of directed us to where to go. Um, but I kept kind of just glancing back at this man with this smile on his face, and he just had this calming effect on me. To this day, I believe he was an angel. Um, after Brian was wheeled out, I fell apart in tears. I just started crying because the man who left me that morning as a strong 6'2", 240-pound whatever, was now sitting in a wheelchair as a weak person. And I remember glancing to look for the man, and he was gone. But I think that whoever he was, the Lord used him to just kind of calm my heart, you know. Um, and then we took, we had instructions from the doctor then to take Brian to the ER here in Dallas. So that, that was where we went that day. And so then uh, I'm sure he probably went through some treatments and all of that. How was, what was his prognosis when he was first diagnosed and how did, the, how did that part of the journey go? Um, he had surgery five days later. Oh, wow. The news the day of surgery was they were able to get about two inches of it. It was in the right side of his brain, front, the front, but the rest of it, the kind of cancer it was, they described as honey on bread. And so they could not resect the rest of it. And it pretty much covered all the way back to his ear. So they were able to get two inches, but the rest of it, there was no way to, to resect. So um, he started chemo. I'm not sure how soon after that. Um, there really wasn't a lot of response to the chemo initially. And about six months later, then we decided to go to MD Anderson in Houston. Um, and at that point, they had discovered that if you did the chemo and radiation together, 
there was more response. And so then he spent the next, I don't know how much time doing both chemo and radiation. And, and he did get about 50% reduction at that point. Wow. But there could never be another surgery. Not at that stage. No, yeah, because it was, was he stage four already or the only stage did it too, because it was slow growing at that okay. point. So the, the positive side of it was that it was slow growing and the, and they said he could live up to 10 years. Um, wow. At the time, you know, my friends kept saying, well, that's a long time. Yes, for brain cancer, that's a long time. But I was devastated. Mm-hmm. I wanted him for 50 more years. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. And I was kind of offended by it. Yeah. You know, yeah. Said, that's a long time. Because <laughs> you know? I quickly calculated the ages of my children. And in 10 years, it was just 12, 15, and 18. You know, they were only two, five, and eight when he was diagnosed. So my first thought was, how on earth am I going to get through life? watching my children watch their father die. Yeah, yeah. And so then how was the journey toward the end? I mean, how long did he endure treatments, and when did you know it was getting close? He actually lived almost nine years, which was unbelievable. He had a few years in between with no treatment, but he was never the same again after his surgery. And part of that, I think, was the medication. He was never able to get off the anti-seizure medication he continued having seizures every time they tried to take him off. So he he kind of lived, he continued to work, but he lived with disabilities. The beauty for me was that his personality never changed and his sense of humor never changed. So that was huge for me. My dad actually died in February of 2006. And then in December of 2006 is when we found out that Brian's was returning and was much worse. So at that stage, I don't remember what they staged it at at that point. Um, It was three plus, I think. He underwent a um, biopsy and it was just too deep. They couldn't get to it. So in May, they started more chemo treatments. Um, In May of 2007, we got a pretty good report, even though I saw symptoms kind of getting worse. And I told the doctor, you know, I don't have a good feeling because... His memory was worse. There were just a lot of symptoms that I was concerned about, and yet there was nothing on the MRI that indicated there was reason to be concerned. That was May um, on the 4th of July. Actually, the morning of the 5th of July, in the middle of the night, I heard a sound in the bathroom, and I got up, and he, he was laying on the floor in the bathroom, completely weak. I couldn't get him up, and my strong, athletic son couldn't help me get him up. So we called the ambulance and that uh, he went in the hospital that day and never came home. So he died July 30th. Wow. So this time of year, because I'm interviewing you in July, yes. this is mm-hmm. a hard month for you. Yes, actually it is. Mm-hmm. So when he passed, was he coherent? Were you able to say goodbyes or did it, was it a slow goodbye? Or how did that, how did that work? He lost a lot of mental capacity at that point. It was pretty sudden. From May to July, he just went downhill so fast I can't even explain it. Um, I was I saw it coming, but I always, you know, we always think we have more time than we have. Um, he really he could not remember things that I would tell him. I had to take over his medications because he would wake up in the morning and think it was time to eat and take his medication, and it was only five in the morning or whatever. You know, he couldn't manage time. He couldn't process time. 
you know. So, yeah, he deteriorated pretty quickly even after that doctor's report. Um, And I think we were supposed to see the doctor pretty soon, but, you know, he ended up in the hospital. We called the doctor in Houston and he said, He's in such bad shape. If you try to transport him to Houston, he probably will die in the process in the, in, on the trip. So he said, if they can do the surgery in Dallas, do it there. So the blessing was, you know, we were able to communicate with the doctor in Houston. They talked with the doctors here, you know, so we were able to, we had some help in that way. But yeah, once he went in the hospital the 5th of July, um, I think he, he was in and out of consciousness. Um, sometimes he was able to communicate with us and sometimes not. He did have another surgery here, but he just never, never was able to, to um, even go to rehab. So he passed and you are suddenly a widow. How old were you at that time? 46. So super young for a widow. Yes. And um, eventually you wrote about this and you wrote a book. Tell me the title of, of that book. The title is Widowed, When Death Sucks the Life Out of You. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I'll feature that in the show notes. But uh, you obviously weren't in a state of mind to write a book like that no. after <laughs> it happened. So um, describe a little bit of the grief journey or how you, know, how you moved through that and what was helpful and what wasn't. Yeah. Um, wow. Um, it's a huge question. <laughs> yeah. Describing widowhood, um, devastating. Um, for me, Brian was my best friend. I remember real soon after he was diagnosed, I, we went to bed and I was crying, you know, thinking about where we were, where we were headed. Um, he took me in his arms and as he did so, I began to sob because what was on my mind was who's going to be here for me when he dies. And that really is the description. You know, now all of a sudden your best friend is gone and you, nobody fits those shoes. I had a lot of good friends and family who were very supportive, but um, man, the bed is empty. Uh, The closet hangs with his clothes that are unworn. Um, The children are grieving. You have no help in just talking through how do we deal with this? You know, you're on your own completely. Uh, the moment and, and you know, the cover of my book describes the moment that you go to the doctor and you circle the word widowed for the first time. Um, that moment is unbelievably excruciating because that title is thrown on you. You know, you don't get to choose that title. We choose the title of Mrs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but widowed gets thrown on you when when you least dis- deserve it or dis- want it, you know. Um, I mean, there are blessings in the storm, and I, I never like to talk about the pain without talking about the blessings because God is just amazingly gracious in the midst of the pain. I mentioned the book, Not My Will. Um, I went to the bookstore soon after he died. I'm not sure how soon after, looking for some help. And I bought probably 10 books on grief and widowhood, um, none of which really met my need fully. I found some chapters and some paragraphs that were helpful. Um, But at some point, I I felt reminded of this book, Not My Will, and I really believe it was God who reminded me. um, And I I just felt compelled to find this book. It was actually written in the 1800s, believe it or not. Um, And I suddenly remembered, oh, Amazon sells books. (laughs) (laughs) What? (laughs) 
So I went to Amazon.com and I found it and ordered it and it came. And when it arrived, I took the book and sat in my bed and I read it from front to back the first day. And literally in the middle of that book, I realized God handed me that book 35 years before I needed it to prepare me for where I was. The sheer realization of God's goodness that he would place a book in my hand 35 years before I needed it was just unbelievable to me that he would care that much, you know? So I, I just felt like God would see me through one way or another. But yeah, the process is excruciating, devastating, horrifying, um, and really, you have to take it one moment at a time sometimes, you know. But I would say also, and I, I just over lunch while I was thinking through talking to you, you know, reading through the Psalms, um, you know, the Psalms are so full of devastation and grief and the depression. I think the Psalms are a great place to spend your time in the midst of great sadness. You know, um, there's a lot of encouragement and reminder that God is good, that God is in control, that God wants the best for me, you know? So little by little, you know, um, uh, medication. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you know, there are a lot of Christians who think we shouldn't, we should just trust God. A lot of Christians are depressed. I, I will stand here as one who admits to medication. I'm not sure I could have I certainly was not capable of being the parent that I needed to be without the medication. And so I took medication to sleep and I took medication, antidepressant medication. So I'm here to give people permission. That's good. I think it's important that we give people permission because everyone has their own grief in different ways and and grief can lead to depression and depression is a medical condition that can be treated and not necessarily easily or simply it's, you know, you have to kind of work to get it at the right place, but, um, but it's important. And I do want to give listeners permission to just seek out whatever God has for you of, of what your avenue of healing will be. And, and, uh, yeah. And I I would also like to say that, you know, medication isn't the whole answer, but it does, it, it takes the edge off enough to where that you can begin to heal and sort of begin to, to put one foot in front of the other for me. And now I know there are people that, that will experience like no feeling whatsoever. That was not the case for me. I, I still cried a lot, but it gave me the, the strength to kind of place one foot in front of the other and, and make a plan to, to start moving forward. So I don't want to negate the years of grief and getting through that as a widow, but we have a a short period of time on the Restory show. So I'm going to bounce readers forward or listeners forward to eventually you met some weird guy named Howard. <laughs> he's not weird. He's great. He is uh, weird, but he's great. He is weird and great. Um, I like Howard. Uh, but eventually you met him. Um, how many years later was that? And were you like, I don't ever want to meet anyone ever again? Or were you open to it? Or did he, how did that work? That was a process as well. Uh, you know, over the years, I, I had I thought it through. And I, as a personality, I am a people person. I easily get lonely. I, I knew, even before Brian died, that um, I would be one who would eventually want to remarry. How to get there, I had no clue. Um, and that was the piece that 
I couldn't figure out. I did a lot of processing at the cemetery. Um, it was at the cemetery one day, sitting there praying and um, just crying that I, you know, I remember I have a scripture on, on the, his stone and I recommend that highly. I sat there praying and crying. And when I opened my eyes and looked up, the realization hit me. This is all I have left. I have my memories and my children in this piece of grass with a stone on it. And it dawned on me at that moment that my relationship with Brian Geiger on this side of heaven was over. That was a very painful thing to recognize. And yet it was the great impetus that helped me move on to the next stage of, okay, what does it look like to move forward from here? So, and I also realized at that moment that if I wanted a relationship like I had with Brian, it had to include somebody else. So that began the process of trying to figure out how to get there. I, I don't like the word let go. I didn't want to let go. Um, so I adopted the phrase move forward. And so for me, it was really just a process of finding how am I going to move forward? Um, and I, I hit a point where I was either going to go down and crash or I was going to go up. And that's really where I I'm, gave into antidepressants or at least another form of it. Um, and I figured I needed at that point to take off my wedding rings. I needed to accept the fact that I was single. Uh, and part of that was removing the wedding rings and removing his clothes from my closet. So that was March the 9th of 2010. Coming up on the second anniversary of Brian's death, um, well, in June, I received a book through a mutual friend from Howard Joslin his favorite book on grief. And this mutual friend would talk to him about grief and talk to me about grief until she would tell each of us about the other one. And we prayed for each other, hmm. but we didn't really know each other. And um, just at some point he kind of had a burden for me and decided to send me that book. And so I devoured it in one sitting, I think, and um, wrote him a thank you note, made sure I didn't put an address on it. <laughs> um, <laughs> Cause I was afraid. Yeah. I was like, what? You know, I don't know. It was very scary, the process of even thinking about going on a date, mm -hmm. you know, even though I wanted it. Yeah. So anyway, to make a long story short, um, coming up on the anniversary, just just a few days or maybe a week before the anniversary of Brian's death, I received a Facebook message or friend request from Howard. And we started communicating via messenger or what, whatever that was called back then. And very quickly, we just really became best friends just sharing our hearts at kind of at the base, deep level of pain. Because he had lost his wife. He had lost his wife the same summer mm. I lost Brian. Mm. Um, so, yeah, we, we just, I didn't even know what he did for a living for a long time because we were talking about our grief and our families. And then right just a day or two before the anniversary of Brian's death, he kind of let it out that he was interested in taking this beyond friendship, and I kind of freaked out. <laughs> Um, and I said, oh, I can't do it. I can't do it at this stage, you know. So then he offered to back off, which he did. And then I realized I missed him after that. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we very quickly became best friends just because we totally understood each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Grief kind of bound you together. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So how much longer before you he ended up asking you to marry him? The... Uh, proposal came the 30th of October. We pretty much knew by the time we met in person that we would probably get married. Um, so remember, I took my wedding rings off on March the 9th. 
we married on November the 27th. Oh, so your engagement was fast, like one Very month. Fast. <laughs> okay. Wow. So I want to bring listeners around to the beginning of your story and the end of your story because there's something interesting there where you met Brian and you thought you'd be a missionary and then um, that didn't end up happening, but God kind of prepared you through a book and through a knowing. And then you met Howard, and now what kind of work are you guys doing? And where did you just come from? <laughs> <laughs> so kind of ironic, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. We are a nonprofit publisher. We, we provide materials for pastors uh, overseas really is our, where our heart is. We do a little bit more than that. But um, yeah, so in some ways we're in missions um, from our home in Dallas, Texas, uh, or Rowlett, Texas. Yeah, it's really amazing and interesting how God, um, a lot of the dreams we had together with our first spouses, the Lord didn't honor or didn't bring to fruition, let's say. But Howard and I are now living a lot of those dreams out. Um, and I, I have no answer for why God did it that way, you know, but um, yeah, so we feel like we have kind of come full circle where we get to be in missions kind of um and then, yes, I just came from a 40-year reunion with my boarding school classmates, um, which was just delightful and soul-refreshing. Um, so, yeah. I and prior to that, you were in? Bangkok. Yeah, Bangkok. For a conference, yeah. yeah. It's just interesting how God does things. And you're right. I mean, you, if you were going to script this, you wouldn't have scripted it that way. You would have scripted it that you and your first husband would stay married forever. He wouldn't die. You would be on the mission field someday, or you'd be in business together and supporting missions or whatever it is. And that would have been a really great story. Um, but it wasn't how it worked out. And so here's my, um, I have two questions for you. One is how, what kind of advice would you give to a widow um, or a widower who is is facing this void in front of them of grief? Um, first of all, give yourself permission to grieve. Yeah. That there is a season to grieve. Um, there's a season to to give in to the pain. And if you don't, you, you it's very difficult to come out on the other side okay. Um, so the very first piece of advice is, is let yourself grieve. For the first two or three years, just really is survival. And that's okay. I think once you get to two or three years, you need to start figuring out how to, to find find your way through this. And everybody's going to have a different path. But um, in the process of the horrible, horrible pain, be still and know that I am God. I, you know, I was reading that just this afternoon. I am God. I will in the future be exalted. Um, I will in the future be exalted in the earth. And I, I really think that the Restory show is about what God does in the end or what God does to bring beauty out of the ashes. You know, God will bring beauty out of the ashes, but it is not going to look how we want it to or how we plan it to, you know. And that's something the Lord has just really been putting on my heart lately, even just with a child who isn't walking with the Lord. You know, do, it, do, do I insist on writing that story or am I going to trust God with that story? And really, that's the bottom line with all of us, no matter where we are, whatever we face. Um, can we trust God with the final outcome of our story? And sometimes I just don't want to. <laughs> no, I don't either. I just want to take control <laughs> of that. There's a lot of pain in the middle of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'd rather not walk through the 
deep waters, but, um, but boy, the wisdom that comes through on the other side is really great. So I'm yes. thankful and, for that. You know, we can be honest with God. We can tell him it hurts. I don't like this. You know, I have a journal full of that, but also at the end often is Lord, give me grace to make it through. And not that I don't, I still grieve. I still cry. I still, you know, but it, it but it, it is not as painful as it once was. So I, that would be the encouragement I give is that over time, the pain lessens. God is still good in the midst of it all. And he gives us grace to make it through. So a lot of that is, you know, surrender to what God's plan. I mean, even the process of falling in love again was very painful. People find that difficult to believe. But the process of falling in love again is a process of also walking, not walking away, but making conscious choices to step out of the deep attachment that you had to the first spouse. Um, and so it's, it's a painful process, even though it's exhilarating at the same time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So if you, as you look back over the, this last year or two of your life, how has God restoried you? I am in a place I would never have picked for myself. I am in a place that I would never believe I am. Uh, I am running a nonprofit publishing company. I never even believed I would. I always had a little bit of a desire to write, but, you know, so I thought maybe someday I would write a book, but publish other people's books. You know, yeah, um, God just has a way of kind of throwing us into things sometimes that we don't really choose for ourselves, but he uses it to grow us up and grow us in ways we wouldn't grow ourselves, maybe. Um, so I think, and there's a lot of comfort and um, beauty that comes out of surrender to the Lord and accepting, okay, this is what he wants for me. I'm going to attack it and let him work his miracles, you know. Mm-hmm. And I'll attest to um, the Power of Authenticity Bookhouse, which is what it's called. Uh, it is abhbooks.com. Is that right? Yes. Or is it .org? Com. Or is it both? Okay, .com, abhbooks.com. And they are a nonprofit, and what they do is they, uh, they get theological resources into the hands of the under-theologically resourced by using local pastors overseas to translate, and that way they're blessed with some financial remuneration, and um, their whole community is blessed because then they get something theological in their um, in their studies or their you know abilities to be pastors. The other side of ABH is that they help new authors, mainly new authors, but some established authors publish their books with more of a benevolent platform than a traditional publisher would have. So you can tell that I'm connected to this ministry somehow because I know the (laughs) answers, but is there anything else you want to add to what I said, Fran? That was great. (laughs) Should I become your spokesperson? Mary's my advisor. (laughs) I'm your PR rep. That's right. Yes. Um, so they're doing really good work, and and I know I've watched Fran over the past couple of years just kind of step into this role, like you said. I mean, this is not something you would have thought, oh, this is going to be on my resume someday, but you've stepped in it, into it very beautifully, and I'm excited to see what God has in store for, you know, what's next for ABH and, and more resources and more hands. So thank you for everything that you're doing there as well, and thank you for sharing your story today. You're very welcome. Thank you for asking me. Thanks for listening to The Restory Show. Do you mind if I pray for you today? Lord, thank you for giving us life. Thank you for being the author of life. 
But for those in the audience today who have lost someone who, and who are walking through great amounts of grief, I pray for healing. I pray for the process to make its way through, and I pray that you would be walking alongside those who are grieving um, the loss of someone that they love dearly. Lord, I thank you that at the tomb of Lazarus you wept because you understood this human condition of grief and that you were a man of sorrows acquainted with grief and you understand what it's like to be acquainted with our weaknesses in that way. And so please just be with us. Help us to know we're not alone. But also thank you for the hope that there comes in knowing that there is more to this life than just what we see in front of us. I pray also for Authenticity Bookhouse. I pray that you would um, expand their borders. I pray you would bring more translators in and more translations and more theological resources to get to the outer corners of the earth. I pray that you would help new authors to expand their message and to expand the borders of the kingdom of God based on their message. And I also thank you for um, those who have stories who had plans and they didn't turn out quite the way they wanted them to, and they're living with discouragement with you, Lord, because they think that you let them down. So, Lord, I I don't know how to resolve that problem, and I've had that problem myself where I've wondered why things happen the way they do, but I trust that, I trust, Lord, that you will make things clear in time, and that even if you don't make them clear, that you would hold the hand and hold the heart of those who grieve today. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd like to know more about today's story, or today's show, rather, uh, with links and extended information, go to marydemuth.com forward slash restory 2-6, and may you live a brand new story this week.